Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we are talking to Ethan Lipsitz. Ethan is living with brain cancer as a visual artist and love extremist, a media platform he founded that advocates actionable love for ourselves, our relationships, our institutions, and our planet. But uh, in the meantime, he also travels the world as an artist, speaker, media producer, and facilitator, and we are lucky to have him. And welcome, Ethan. How are you? I'm so great. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Mike. And actually, I want to get the uh, question that most of our listeners are probably dying to know. I just announced that you're living with brain cancer. That sends all sorts of exclamation points out into the universe. So do you want to just go ahead and quickly explain uh, the status with that and how you would describe that? Sure. Well, I discovered I had brain cancer in 2017 after suffering a seizure in my sleep and then going to urgent care and doing a CAT scan, finding an alien living in my brain. Um, and that precipitated, um, you know, two weeks later, I went into surgery. We got a biopsy that articulated the type of cancer I have, which is a grade three anaplastic astrocytoma. I then went through chemotherapy and radiation. So 2017 was an intense year. I went through a lot of acute treatment. Um, the consecutive four years leading up to now 2021, I've basically been processing that identity as someone living with brain cancer. And oftentimes when people get a brain cancer diagnosis, unless the operation completely removes it through surgery, um, usually some tumor tissue remains, and that can be a lot or a little bit depending upon where the tumor is and the tumor type. So if someone says they've been diagnosed with brain cancer, it's usually not a, oh, you're in remission now type conversation. It's usually a, this is my life now and I'm managing it. And so uh, I am currently managing brain cancer through living, taking a lot of drugs every day, um, living with a ketogenic diet, fasting intermittently. Um, and it's not kind of the fatty ketogenic diet. There's a, a little bit of a more specific cancer oriented diet that I, that I take that's meant to be healthy for my brain. And then I'm a practicing artist and facilitator and podcast host and do a lot of things that are really rooted in. Um, my well-being so that uh, I can continue living and having purpose while I'm here. That's awesome. Um, And we're going to get into follow-up questions about all that. I wanted to ask that uh, first, even though normally I ask people how old you are, where you grew up, and what generation you're from, but I just wanted to get that out of the way first. So if you don't mind, now can you answer the more banal question? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I'm currently 37, so I was diagnosed when I was 33. Uh, I live in LA, but I'm originally from Brookline, Massachusetts. So I'm a New England guy. Um, yeah, and I've lived actually all over the world. So, um, but LA is currently home and has been since 2008. Cool. Well, uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. And I, I definitely understood everything you said about uh, the brain cancer. So, I guess my first follow-up question to that would be: Would you define yourself as optimistic, pessimistic, neither? And what is your actual like? What's your intuitive feeling about all of this? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, I would say I'm optimistic. Um, largely I am in gratitude. So I, I think optimism and gratitude kind of go hand in hand. Also, I have oriented my life and my healing largely in a state of love. And while love isn't always 
positive in my view. Um, it is generative and looking towards the future. So I'm I'm future leaning and believe in uh, health being something that I can have some control over while also recognizing that there's a lot of things I don't have sovereignty over. And so it's about accepting what I can control, making those intentional choices to stay in good health and in love, um, while also recognizing that life isn't promised and we are all given a fatal diagnosis as soon as we're born. So survival is um, kind of a, a daily challenge for every individual on this planet. Well said. Wow. That's very deep and very wise. Um, and actually, uh, you sort of tangentially got into like what I normally ask in reverse, but were you raised with a religion or were you raised with any sort of spiritual philosophy? And then a follow up to that. Yes or no, it doesn't matter. Since being diagnosed, have you switched or encountered or developed one? So I was raised in a reformed Jewish community, which was, I would say, very culturally Jewish, but certainly tied to traditions and holidays. Um, and yeah, some kind of uh, low-key you know, Zionist principles. I I'd say since living abroad in Australia, I started to become more interested in embodiment and alternative spiritual practice largely Eastern, you know, the Australia, Sydney specifically has a lot of uh, practitioners of alternative medicine, Eastern medicine, started going to an acupuncturist. I was an avid skateboarder. And if I'd hurt myself on the skateboard, I may get acupuncture treatment or, or do use Chinese herbs. I was living with someone who practiced Alexander technique. I had a good friend who worked for a kinesiologist. So there were a number of things that took place while I was living abroad that kind of got me interested in alternative medicine. Um, it's actually funny. I was mugged and hit over the head uh, by, by a kid with a Jack Daniels bottle in me, 10 years before I got my diagnosis of brain cancer in the exact same spot. Um, so head trauma uh, is a real thing and definitely can come back to haunt you. But um, yeah, I went, I went to a kinesiologist to try to resolve some of the kind of trauma I experienced through that. But it wasn't until I got to LA and started connecting with people here that I discovered alternative kind of, I don't know if spiritual is the right word, but healing practices and modalities that were a little bit more rooted in you know, esoteric breath practice, um, usually not guided by medicine until later, but, but different kind of teachers and healers that were looking at ways of uh, considering our ego, considering our identity, our history, and working through kind of resolving trauma in our body um, in different ways. And I was always curious about doing that. I was never really into drugs or escapism, but I did find that meeting people who had different ways of living and different ways of healing was just a fascinating, both intellectual pursuit and then eventually became more of an embodied pursuit far before I um, was diagnosed. And I'd say that also bled into my interest around spirituality and sexuality, um, which was another dimension of um, kind of exploration for me and study that I, I got into as I was kind of pursuing love and partnership, I was also kind of trying to understand 
what role my masculine identity and spirituality had to play with all of that. Oh, I love it. I would actually love to for you to talk a little bit more about that because we haven't explored that on the show. And uh, for sure, we have a lot in common. First of all, I was also raised Reformed Jew and just a lot of the things you said are connecting with me. And I grew up like, you know, both participating in the obvious like, quote unquote, toxic masculine culture that most boys our age were at the very least introduced to. And I know, you know, Boston, Massachusetts is notorious for this, um, not claiming that you are of that or that you enjoy that. But so can you kind of talk about because love is like such an important word and such an important concept. And I think, you know, this podcast is just promoting all peaceful interactions with love and other spiritual philosophies. But uh, what about the sexuality and love part? I'm really interested about your take on that. Mm -hmm. I think I realized relatively early in my life that every decision I have made has been in search for love. And my belief is that that is the case for all of us, even if we are making choices that seem rooted in hate or financial gain or power. Um, ultimately, that all boils down to a search for love, whether informed or not. And um, that became very clear for me from a young age. And I often found sought love in the form of partnership. So while I may have been in denial of that, um, I was looking to be the best possible man so as to attract uh, a female partner that um, was also um, someone that I could love and would love me. Um, and that was a tall order. I grew up with a lot of love. I, I have, came from a very loving household. And there was a lot of work I needed to do on myself as it related to various identities I kind of was holding on to or was brought up with um, that I needed to learn how to understand and manage and eventually release. And I'd even say the kind of, uh, I don't know how to explain it other than dissection of my masculinity was a practice of trying to understand how I could be a better lover in a sexual sense, which was in many ways a distraction from being a better lover in a human sense. And what I mean by that is we often displace love as romance and sexuality. And I'm not saying it's not that, but there's so much more to it. And that's just one ingredient. Um, and oftentimes one that is, it happens in spurts and moments or short periods and sustaining long-lasting, deep, heart-oriented love is something that is a full-body, uh, full-soul practice that goes far beyond sexuality and gender. Um, and so those ingredients were kind of almost part of my journey and discovery uh, when I got to LA was around this kind of masculinity training and learning about polarity and kind of studying some of the David Data School. I don't know if you're familiar with the kind of um, way of the superior man book, which talks a lot about kind of certain certain ways that men should be um, or women should be, which I don't necessarily subscribe to anymore. But it was an interesting period of discovery around the idea of polarity and creating a, a masculine pole so as to attract a more feminine partner and there are certain elements of that belief which I still align with and think are, are spot on and others which I think are somewhat problematic and don't acknowledge the um, non-binary nature of our identity. 
that's really well said. And thank you. I'm so glad I asked about that. Yeah. Um, I, I spent a lot of time for my job. I index books and I, I index a ton of books on intersectionality. And it's something I always thought about even before I did that. And I, you know, like I said, growing up, it was very confusing for me to go through a very similar process that you just described and to like really understand that like my heart is full of compassion and love for other people. And that's considered effeminate. <laughs> and, uh, what does that mean to me and what does that mean to other people? But the reason I'm, I'm talking about myself right now is only to segue into, I would love for you to explain what love extremism is. Cause I'm a hoping that I'm a part of it and B, I just want to hear about it. So <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah, the podcast I run is called love extremist radio and the love extremist movement began in 2015 when I went to a talk between a reformed neo-Nazi named Christian Piccolini and someone who used to work at Obama's Department of Homeland Security. And they were engaged in a conversation about extremist hate and the ways in which extremist hate groups in America recruit. And I was fascinated by the conversation. They were talking about a lot of technological tools that the government was using and investments they were making to try to divert people who may be led to hate into other alternatives or just to keep them from joining these groups. And for me, it was crystal clear, anyone who's joining a hate group is looking for love. It's just like, that's the most obvious thing to me in the world. You're, you're looking in all the wrong places, but you're hunting for acceptance. You're hunting for connection and bonding and relationships in service to a common enemy. And we do that even if we're not in hate groups. We do that as nationalists, as patriots. We do that as you know, uh, members of various identities. It's kind of built into um, organizational practices and power dynamics in a lot of ways. But I raised my hand in this conversation and I asked, so what is the government doing to fund extremist love? What is the government doing to fund alternatives to extremist hate? And I, I knew the answer was nothing, um, but I asked the question anyway, and I couldn't stop thinking about the question. And at the time I was running a custom apparel platform in business and I was fascinated with design and art and still am. And I basically created this logo, which was a heart with the word extremist in it and started producing pins, just little lapel pins. And I made a hundred of them and immediately they were given out. People wanted to wear them. They were like, what is this? Like this extremist heart, what's this all about? And I was like, well, what does it mean to you? Is this kind of open source conversation? And the pin was a dialogue starter. So people would wear the pin and I still sell these pins. I have now handed out thousands of them to people all over the world and celebrities and you know everyday folks I meet in the street. And ultimately it starts this conversation. What does it mean to be an extremist for love? And as I started having this conversation, I started to recognize there's actually a history of love extremism, especially in our social justice and civil rights movement in America. Dr. Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail, if I am to be an extremist, may I be an extremist for love? Um, we have Dr. Cornell West, who speaks at Oxford Union about being a love extremist in response to a debate with um, Angela Davis, uh, of all people, um, about love and love as activism. Um, there's also current day love extremists from Valerie Kaur, who is an incredible Sikh leader uh, who works with Van Jones, who's a pretty well-known media host, but also someone who speaks about revolutionary love. Um, Angel Kyoto Williams, who's a reverend uh, in the Buddhist tradition. There's so many activists, Lama Rod Owens, who are kind of activists, spiritual leaders and teachers who use love as a form of healing in their communities and a spiritual practice. And I've recognized 
um, that also encompasses creativity and collective creativity. And so I've discovered these conversations have been openings to more questions about what love means in practice, how we can love beyond our intimate comfort zones, and um, started to practice love through co-creative experiences. So I gather people together, we put on blindfolds and we sing. That's one crazy experience of awe that we can cultivate in our bodies and gets us out of our heads and into our hearts and into connection and resonance. That's one. Um, another one is uh, I, I often will um, just gather people for conversation. And so I have a, a club on Clubhouse with over 80,000 members now where we talk every week about different subjects relating to love. And we can find connection and commonality in the challenges we move through as humans, um, talking about basically peripheral topics that are tied to love and love in our personal lives and our self-love and love in our collective lives. So that's a long-winded answer. There's a lot more to get into, but anyway, we'll start there. No, no, I mean, it was great though. And trust me, I'm not like, uh, yeah, I fully support your movement um, and I'm so impressed. Um, however, I do, I do need to get to the actual question that we always ask everyone. Um, we're not out of time or anything, but I want to give you plenty of time to explore it. So the person who recommended you to me um, recommended you for two reasons. The first was that they said you're obviously encountering and dealing with the idea of death a lot. But then they also mentioned that you were like a very positive, loving person. So you're two for two. You're killing it. Um, and uh, so I'm just curious, like, what is your actual opinion? What do you think happens to us when we die? And you've already said, you know, we're all like life isn't promised. We're all dying literally. So, you know, I know you've addressed that part. But like, do you think there's something beyond this physical life? Do I think there's something beyond this physical life? Well, I have no doubt. Um, I believe that we exist beyond our bodies. I mean, just take a breath and hold the inhale and you can feel far beyond your skin. So yeah, our bodies exist, our souls exist, our spirits exist well beyond the skin. And so the body is purely a vessel with which we inhabit for a limited time. Um, it is a gift. It is something that I don't take delicately. It is, I call it a delicacy of the body of living. And I, I acknowledge that my Ethanness will exist long beyond my body combusts. And so that gives me some comfort. The other thing is while I have this body, I'm looking to bring some level of impact and effect to the planet around me. And a lot of that is in the form of love extremism and, and, and love ultimately being my purpose. And I actually believe that is our human superpower and it, it boils down to the purpose for all of us. Um, but we, we often convoluted in other ways, but yeah, that, that's a thesis that I've been operating under for a while. So I do believe we live beyond our bodies our bodies are vessels that eventually do combust and and decompose and rot and all those things and that's important and what we bring while we have these bodies is immeasurable and can make long-lasting impact even if it's just in one person's life um that's still meaningful totally um so i guess my first follow-up question is do you believe that you, Ethan, are going to reflect on Ethan's life 
after this? Or do you believe that there's a different thing that is beyond Ethan and Ethan is done? Um, I think this mind will be done. And so whatever imprint I have left on the world will remain. And maybe my spirit or my soul will go somewhere. I do believe our souls and our spirits live on and they could live on in the work we create, our creative expression. I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm a musician, I'm you know, working on various projects that I expect to live long beyond me. So there's all sorts of ways in which we live on, but I believe the mind and the body decompose and go and our souls perhaps you know, get embodied in other ways, but um, still, still thinking on that one as to what happens to the soul. <laughs> cool, yeah, and obviously I am too, and that's why I'm interviewing almost anyone I can to uh, to hear what their answers are. It's not, um, you know, there's some consistencies among almost every guest we've ever had, and but I think what you're speaking to that I'm really interested in, not picking apart, but like adding to the conversation is, it's very easy on a good day for any human to talk about dying and blah, 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 but it's a lot harder on a bad day. And, uh, I'm assuming, especially in 2017, you had a lot of bad days. Um, so how much did, did then, and how much does now this question matter to you? The question of what happens when you die, like how much of that matters to you when you're, when you're facing what you were facing and are currently facing? Cause I feel that they are different. Uh, I don't know how much it matters at all. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in what I can do while I'm here. Um, and so what happens when I'm gone is what happens. You know, I accept it. I, I don't really have any expectations for it. I think it's more so just cool surrender to that when it's time to surrender to it. And in the meantime, live, live it up. You know, you got this body and you only got one. I believe I only got really one chance. So, you know, since I don't remember much of you know myself before this body this is my opportunity to live it up and and experience it and enjoy it that's very cool that's a very good answer I, I, um i'm surprised by your answer in a good way um so i guess because uh so my, i've had very limited experiences with uh thinking i'm actually gonna die or dying um i was nearly killed in a car accident when i was on a bicycle i remember being in the hospital and there was this like look in people's eyes not all of them where like i could just tell that they like felt sorry for me and that they were worried for me. And that was more stressful than anything else. I'm curious, did you go through any of that in the last four years? Yep, definitely. Um, I think whenever you are facing a life-threatening diagnosis or a challenging moment, other people's relationship to mortality shows up very quickly and you are reflecting that. So we are all mirrors for each other. And if you are going through a tough time, or facing disease process or whatever you may be going through, there's no doubt that from medical professionals to your close friends and family, their relationship to death will likely appear in some way, shape or form in how they relate to you. And you know, the person who gave me my diagnosis was almost in tears doing so. And you know, I had to hold it together, I felt like for them. And so, yeah, I think this question of, it's, sometimes bedside manner as it relates to doctors and, uh, and medical professionals, but also just our human to human manner in dealing with mortality is a really important 
challenge that we face and it's a reason why I do a lot of programming and conversations about death because we need to get comfortable with this thing. It's, it's our, all of our diagnosis, we're all gonna die. And the kind of fear of it, I think is actually a limitation to living a more full, meaningful life. Love it, absolutely love it. I'm 100% on your same page as you. Um, so I have one weird question that I wasn't sure if I was gonna have time to ask, but I do wanna ask it. Um, I had a friend who, very, very close friend who passed away from liver cancer. And I remember him talking very briefly in the beginning about how sometimes he felt like he deserved it. And sometimes he felt like he didn't, you were much more specific and you were hit on the head, literally in the spot of the tumor. And it was by a person, you know, like it wasn't like horseplay. <laughs> um, it was a very tragic to me perspective, uh, experience. You run a site called love extremism. I can tell it's true. So if you were to ever encounter that person again, what, what, how do you imagine that conversation would go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I'd want them to understand uh, kind of what they did, but I also think uh, I, I am the type of person that wants to understand how they could do it. So what in them made that okay? And ultimately, I already kind of know that answer. I mean, these were young kids who were drinking and trying to cause trouble and Sydney and, and, and Australia. And, and I, I got a taste for that life um, by osmosis living there. And so I don't know. I, I guess I, I think for me, them understanding the implications of what they did maybe of value, but I already forgive and release them of any type of responsibility. I mean, I, it's funny, I, I actually had the opportunity to basically go after them. Um, the police had found my phone, um, well, had found people using my phone, which they took, <laughs> and so they weren't particularly smart about how they went about um, you know, using the things they stole. And I could have identified them in a lineup and, you know, confronted them. And I chose not to. And at the time, I didn't want to reopen the trauma of the experience. But now it's more so just um, they, they already kind of have to live with what they've done. And they have to live with the life that they've chosen. And whatever that looks like now, you know, I hope that they're well. I, I really do. I hope that they're healthy and okay because they were definitely not when they were beating me over the head with a Jack Daniels bottle. Wow. Yeah. I, it's the most cliche phrase ever, but bless your heart. <laughs> this is literally my first response to everything you said. Um, that's powerful. And I hope that people listening to this really like reflect on that and think about it. Um, we are up to the end of the interview and I always, always, always give my guests the floor at the end. You can just say whatever you want. You got a couple minutes here. You got a different audience than your own. So what would you like people to know? Gosh, um, I'd like to talk to people about love and purpose. And I guess I'd like people to consider that their lives are really built for love. And if they would like to talk to me about why they're not, <laughs> I would love to hear from them. So I'm really interested in having this conversation. Like what makes a life not built for love and what makes love not your superpower um because i haven't heard a good argument yet as to why it's not 
And while we have these bodies, I'm going to continue to kind of evangelize that mentality that um, we're here for love and, and that's our that's our gift. And the more we can give it, the more we'll receive it. Um, so, yeah, I guess I want to leave people with that consideration and that challenge. And you can find me um, on the extremist.love website, www.extremist.love or e at extremist.love if you want to email me and you can find me on Instagram and just would love to hear people's perspectives around love as purpose and love as our human superpower. Awesome. Well, Ethan Lipsitz, thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Um, as I predicted, this has been an extraordinary interview because you're an extraordinary person. So I hope people check out your numerous uh, websites and, and wares and not just uh, some of it, but all of it. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in life. And again, thank you so much. I am inspired. I hope all of us can become love extremists. And I'm officially going to start calling myself one and I'm going to get some pins. So thank you. This has been another episode of Coffin Talk. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon. <laughs>